Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dr. Dark After Dark Series 2, Episode 4. This is a returning guest, Tim Boyd, who's at Blue Shirt Omaha, I think, or Blue Shirt Advisors, but it'll all be in the notes. Uh, Tim is obviously a returning guest from a year and a bit ago. Uh, he's ex-Bridgewater trader. Um, and today we're going to deep dive into macro, ways to model it, basically what the fuck is going on um but i also want to look into um so blue shirt very much goes well i'm going to call, call him tim because it's his real name uh very much goes long short uses options some more advanced option spreads some kind of just slightly more advanced trading it's not like super advanced or anything um but um so if you're like a super experienced trader you may or may not find that um useful but if you don't know what an iron condor is then I'm sure you will. Um, one point to note is that Tim and I, uh, whilst we've never met each other, we're actually kind of pretty good friends. Uh, we do troll each other a lot as friends. And um, some people seem to not understand what that means. <laughs> so, so we may take the mick out of each other a bit. And that's actually because we, for some reason, like each other. Um, some and, reason. For some reason, exactly. And so as always, this is an investment advice. Please do your own research. Uh, welcome back, Tim. How are you? I'm doing very well, Dr. Chris. Or is it Sir? S-E-R, Sir, right? Well, only if you can put a meme on that. That's you can right. only use Sir <laughs> if you put a meme picture of a frog with various hands coming out of his body. So, there you go. Yeah. No, I'm um, doing well. Um, we moved to Omaha four months ago. We like it so far. We, you know, Everyone thinks Omaha is kind of this podunk Midwest country town, and it is to some extent. But um, there's actually quite a bit going on here, and we've, we've really loved it. So it's been a it's been a good four months for us. And um, yeah, Blue Shirt Advisors, uh, the Nebraska incarnation, is up and running. Uh, we're in registration to become an RIA. We hope. Um, if any regulators are listening to this call, please know that I will attempt to abide by all regulatory semantics as best as I can. <laughs> um, and then we also launched this new product, Blue Shirt Plus, which is. Um, it's still kind of evolving, but the idea was basically to um, share intraday trade ideas and observations and, you know, actionable salient things that people could put to work in their own trading. Yeah, awesome. And I've been using that and it's been, um, well, it's literally just started. So it's been, been good fun so far. Um, and I've spent a lot of time in Kansas City, which isn't far away from Omaha. And, Not too um, far, no. In very fact, similar. There's a chief stand. Yeah, but, yeah. Well, and I've seen some, yeah seen some good games actually there and um but yeah very interesting place too where lots of awesome people gets a bad rep sometimes from people on the coast but very undeservedly in my opinion so um, no the, the midwest i have i've had family lived in minnesota for a long time uh the midwest the people just are they're just salt of the earth um and they just they're just nicer they're more patient i mean i i drive around here and people are like stopping to let me go by and i'm like what are you trying to sell me right now like, you know, why, why are you being so nice to me? I get, I get very suspicious because I'm a New Yorker who then lived on the Yeah, West you don't Coast get that in London. I can tell you that. <laughs> exactly. So they're just so nice. And our neighbors are great. Uh, we live in a, in a really diverse neighborhood with some really great people. We have a big park right across the street. So we, yeah, everybody plays in that with their kids. And it's just been, it's been really great. So all, everything that you hear about Midwest people, at least for me so far, has been true. All right. Well, let's get cracking. So um, I've heard that sometimes you have a few views on the kind of current macro situation. Um, you know, we're obviously at a bit of a crossroads from a pretty clear kind of 
whatever 12 to 18 months of kind of long inflation stuff which has done very well um and so yeah well i mean how do you see things right now we're at a potentially a delicate point or, or maybe we're just in a buy the dip and there we go i think we're at a point here you know today uh as uh, as our followers on twitter know as you know um we we turned pretty bearish on mega cap tech about eight weeks ago so thereabouts and you know and it was a choppy trade um, we got in, we got out, we were up a little, we were down a little. And then obviously over the last week, the trade has done well. But I think when you, when you see a rebound uh, of the vigor <laughs> that we saw today, it, it pounds the point home that, first of all, this is January. It's the biggest inflow month of the year. Um, Tina, is uh, she, she, she got drunk and, and passed out for a few days there for a while, but she's back and, and she's going to be around for a long time. The fact of the matter is, is that you know, uh, cash cash balances are are very high. There's a lot of cash that's waiting to be put to work. People have to put that cash to work on the institutional side. They can't afford to be underinvested. Uh, if you've been underinvested at any time, really in the last 14 years, uh, you've lost your job. <laughs> okay, so you know, as everyone knows, that you know, money market funds uh, have huge balances. There's a, there's a ton of cash uh, coming to market every month. There's a ton of cash building up. Um, the money has to be put to work. You know, institutional PMs who have been underinvested during the last 14 years have uh, have not done well. They may or may not have lost their jobs because of that. So there, there's this impetus, um, this pressure to to get fully invested and stay fully invested. Um, and so I think you saw that uh, very much so today. We had a big drop over the last week in the Nasdaq, in a lot of high high quality companies, uh, obviously like Apple and Google and Amazon, and People who are going to short the indexes, the cap-weighted indexes, need to, they need to know. These, <clears throat> these dip buys are coming. They're probably not going away for a long time. You've got to be nimble. Uh, you've got to fight, fight your FOMO, fight your greed. I mean, you could almost see people jumping in and, and buying puts at the bottom today. Uh, and you know, that's that just adds more fuel to the rally. So, you know, we were fortunate today in that you know, uh, real yields start at the top out. Uh, that's a very important signal that I watch, especially for the NASDAQ, is real five-year yields. Uh, we actually had a, sh a shooting star start to form on the daily charts, and I just said, we're out. Because you knew that that was happening. Uh, TLT had caught a bid. You know, the NASDAQ is not going to keep falling unless yields keep rising. And we've seen this before where you've had a, you've had a spike in yields, and the minute it starts to slow down, the minute the rate of change begins to drop, the tech catches a bid. So you really have to be nimble. You really have to be willing to jump in and out. Uh, and that's you know, kind of what we're attempting to do. Then we had, what, a 250 basis point rally or something. And, and we reshorted the NASDAQ at the end of the day. So we'll see how that goes overnight. But um, yeah, I mean, you, had, you have a technical situation here in that index where we're below the 100-day. We're below the price channel that's been holding price for a long time. So the pressure is still on the downside. But that being said, We've overstayed our welcome on the downside in the past, and we're not going to do that again. Right. And I think that's an important point, because what I got taught by kind of people who have mentored me over the years is that unless there's like some, you know, say March 2020, where if you were short, you could you could pretty much if you really thought the world potentially could end which no one really knew what was going to happen back then, then you could actually hold a short for a decent amount of time, i.e. A week or two <laughs> um 
but but often you've just got to be more nimble. And if you if yeah. if you're in profit, you just got to take a short for a week or two is an eternity nowadays. Exactly. That's kind of my point. It's like you've got to be nimble. So some people I think see tweets and like, well, why have you if you were short it, why why have you taken profits on that? It's like, well, because yeah, you can just be long something for a decade, sure. Exactly. But you cannot be long Apple, sorry, short Apple for a decade. You're, you're gonna be dead, right? So um so I think you probably had to be probably had to borrow money from the mob at 40% interest. And yes, you're probably dead by now. Yeah. So no, it's just interesting for people to realize like going for, for newer traders, going long and short is it's, there's nothing scary about short. You just got to have your risk management in place, but like it is a much higher cadence trade. You're not just going to sit on it and you're paying as well. And it might be very small borrow cost, right? But you are paying something. So. Yeah, obviously it depends on how you do it. I mean, we we affected the trade with QQQ put spreads. Uh, you know, you have a situation here where uh, skew has been exceptionally high for a while. Uh, you know, you go down, you go, kind of go down the range there in QQQ, and you know, two fifty puts are trading at you know a forty percent implied volatility, and then the ones that are closer to the money are trading at twenty five percent. So you were you were getting paid to put the spread on, uh, which I think that's something that newer traders maybe not familiar with. There are ways to get paid to go short, um, but you know I, I'm, I'm trying to remember who, which bulge bracket analyst was talking about this the other day. But uh, you know the, the market has been mispricing the tails for a while, kind of has been underpricing the right tail and overpricing the left tail. So if you're going to go in and you're going to use options to do these kinds of things, it's important to understand what it is that you're buying for your money. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, understanding skew and what it is and how you can benefit from it and how it can kick you in the ass if you don't pay attention to it uh, is a very important thing. Yeah, and I noticed, I remember um, a couple of years ago, I was, I was long, because gold, for example, has a, it's, its skew um, can look, can be quite, um, not, can be quite, non-intuitive sometimes and gold is yeah that's right we were talking about the gold straddles right yeah and, you know uh, gold is a little unusual in that uh it, it usually sees volatility explosions when price rallies exactly which, which by the way is similar to bitcoin uh can do the same thing which is not normal yep. yeah it, right yeah it's a, it's a bit of normal but again if you know what to look for uh i, re I remember um i think it was I want to say it was 2018, August 2018, just when gold bottomed out. And, you know, I just, I threw a couple of gold GLD calls on there and I wasn't really paying attention to them. And one day I looked at them like, wait a minute, how are these things up 10 grand in the last two weeks? And it's because of that very phenomenon. You had implied volatility exploded. The price of theta just went through the roof. And, and that is, yes, like you said, with Bitcoin, with gold, with silver, um, that, that's just one of the idiosyncrasies of those. Yeah, so that's why, I, and we probably spoke about this last time, but um, I mean, whilst I'm not invested in gold now, I, I was uh, in 2020 and I was deliberately buying very long dated options uh, that were out the money because I wanted to get as much of that increase in theater as possible if the vol went up. So, um, and it was, um, um, and also I just found, find it less stressful holding much longer term expiring options than stuff that expires next week. Well, I mean, you're, you're you, ever since I've known you, you, you know, you're, you're definitely more of an investor. Um, you're an investor who takes an interest in, in the trading mentality. And I, I'm a trader by background who has kind of learned the other way. Uh, you know, I've, yeah. I've learned over time how to be more patient, <laughs> uh, 
uh, how, to, how to look for value. I, you know, all of a sudden, um, having a value mentality is beginning to pay off. And that's probably something we should touch on today. As well. well, that was my next question. But I, before I went to that, I wanted to just ask a, a slightly more trolly one. It's not really trolling. But right. if we think of like QQQ, so that's XLK. Sorry, NASDAQ. Yeah, it's, listening. Same thing, right. it's basically XLK. But in effect, XLK is Apple and Microsoft, right? It's like half the index or something ridiculous. Correct. Um, and then you've got the other one that lots of people either love or hate, which is ARC. So Kathy Wood's stuff, which right. is excluding Tesla is generally small, not mega caps, but obviously Tesla's 10% of it. Um, and actually, if you took Tesla's performance out of it, it would have done even worse recently. So, <laughs> um, yeah. But, um, but I, my question really on that is, um, so, you know, I'm a big, I'm a technological geek, right? And in the long run, I, I, I would be extremely surprised if technology doesn't continue to change the world and people build new business models and do new things and, and all this stuff. Having said that, I'm well aware that in the short term, you know, to your point earlier, whilst technology could go up or down or, or different mega cap could be obviously very different to kind of almost like, uh, you know, smaller cap tech. But how do you look at these things from a short and long-term perspective? Or do you just not care about the long-term for this type of stuff because you're really just trading it over the next, you know, two, three months? Sure. I mean, you know, uh, having been at Bridgewater for three years and, and kind of learning the way that they approach things, um, everything is a very top-down approach. Um, you know, the, the, one, of the, one of the key things with trading is you want to increase your probability of success as best you can. So what are some of the ways you can do that? One of the ways we do that is, is like Hedgeye, uh, um, we use a GIP model, a growth inflation policy model, based on the current economic environment, based on how inflation and growth are doing, based on where they're heading, perhaps even more importantly, because it's very much a second derivative type story, that prescribes certain positions. So to increase our chances of success as a trader, we actually take a very long, uh, you know, I wouldn't say a long term, but a medium term, 10,000 foot view. Um, we were, you know, in stagflation in Q4, we're starting to creep to something closer to, uh, you know, Hedgeye calls it quad one, quad four. Um, it, we're going to, like you said, at the beginning of the, of the podcast here, we're at, a, we're at a crossroads here where everyone knows we kind of went from reflation to stagflation towards the end of last year, but where do we go from here? Um, and you know, one of the things that I'm doing to try to increase my probability of, of, of trading profitably is I'm looking at, you know, deflation and Goldilocks. I'm kind of looking at almost a Venn diagram, like what, what, are, the, what are the sectors, what are the factors, the styles, the asset classes that, that do well in a deflationary environment, regardless of how the economy does. And there are some ways to play that. There are some, some, uh, some factors and things that do well in both of those environments. Um, and that's a yeah, that's just a general kind of a approach that we have is start at the very top, work our way down. I don't do a ton of microeconomic analysis. I don't do a ton of stuff at the company level. I'm much more of, a, of an index and an ETF type guy. I do look at some individual names uh, at times, but for the most part, I'm just trying to say, hey, where are we? Where are we going? And what historically has outperformed or underperformed uh, in those environments? Right. So that maybe leads into the thing you alluded to before. So, I mean, that, well, 
some people have been talking about a great rotation to value for about the last uh, 20 years. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, they're, and, and they're right like every five years for about three weeks. Um, right. it's, a great, it's a great three weeks though. It, they bask in glory for three weeks. And I'm not having a go at anyone listening that's in that camp. It's just like, I know how frustrating it is for some, but, but at the end of the day, you know, the, they tend to share the issue where they, they just don't understand nonlinear technology and, and, and how it, you know, yes. Well, you know, you, you, I, I think what you're, I think what you're hitting on here is that there's, there's really two different kinds of value investing. Uh, there's value investing, uh, what, we, what we talk about when we talk about a, an ETF like IWD, you know, the, the Russell 1000 value. Yeah. Is companies that are out of, they're out of their, that a lot of them are long past their secular growth phase. They're very cyclical. They need a rising tide for their stocks to do well. Uh, and when the tide is falling, they're going to tend to lag. Then there's another kind of value investing where, and this is, I think, you know, what you're more attuned to, is where you see an opportunity, a, a secular hypergrowth opportunity, and you see companies playing in that, and you just say, hey, listen, this thing might be trading at 100 times PE, but it's, got, it's, it's 100 bagger from here if they continue to execute. So there, you can have expensive stocks on a headline number that actually are quite cheap. Uh, so I, I always... I always divide value into those two different buckets and they're very different buckets. So like you're talking about ARC, for instance, there's a lot of longer term value plays in that, in that ETF there in terms of these are technologies that are not only going to be around for a while, they're eating up share like crazy. And you don't mind overpaying for a you know, trailing PE or even a four 12 month PE basis. Uh, very different than an Exxon Mobil yeah. uh, or, or, or a Coca-Cola or a Nike, right? Where these guys, they're just dependent on the ebbs and flows of consumer spending. Um, so that's just, that's one distinction that I think is important to make. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And on, on something like ARC, like, I mean, it, it obviously, the, the lower it goes, the more people want to bash Kathy. And of course that will bottom out at some point. Um, and I think what maybe is misunderstood a bit is people like to say, oh, but a bunch of it's going to go to zero. I'm like, well, of course it is. It's, technology companies that aren't profitable it's a venture capital etf yeah it, I mean, it, it, it's exactly what it is it's a public venture etf yeah. and talk although to, talk it, to it just so happens to have like tesla in which is obviously the biggest thing in it by a mile but like as in market cap wise but the point being is there are plenty there are some companies in there and obviously it's some being the word that will do 100x over the next 10 years um quite possible yeah i mean if you, you talk to a, a venture capitalist they only need to hit one out of 10 to make a lot of money. Exactly. Uh, and I think you need to think of ARC like that. I mean, you know, Kathy, I actually, we were short the stock via put spreads for a while. I covered it on Friday, which ended up uh, unfortunately being bad timing because I missed the sell-off that occurred in the hours afterwards. And then I missed the sell-off today, but that's okay. Well, it I, ended I, up I, up today. So. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. I just, I began to get very uncomfortable with all the Kathy bashing. I mean, look, she's bringing a lot of it on herself. I mean, she's out there publicly arguing with the market and, and essentially whining. And that's not something that you want a PM to be that's doing. That's true. Yeah. It, it undermines your ability to have confidence in her. It, 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 gives, it gives off the impression that she just doesn't understand trading or investing. That being said, you know, there, there is a lot of stuff in here that has a good shot to go vertical over the next 10 years. And well, you know, the ETF 
I, you know my position on it. You know, I, I'm I'm very big on technicals. I think there's a decent chance that it falls to the that 61.8% Fibonacci retracement level right around 70. 70, yeah. But right. I'm not interested anymore in shorting it here. The risk reward has just become poor. Sentiment is way too negative. Kathy's brought some of that on, but in reality, I I'm, I'm just here to make money, right? And and I just got very uncomfortable with how negative everyone was. Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a very good point. Um, and, um, no, it's just, you know, it's just one of those fashionable things to bash her. Like, um, and, um, and it's always, of course, when it's that, like it, it, it's this never when it's business and, and it's, and it's generally people who have never done anything in their life. A lot of the time bashing and uh, by the way, haven't also built a business that has whatever it is, 50 to hundred billion in AUM, which is impressive in itself. Having said that, you know, there are some utter dog companies in there that will go to zero. And that, as you said, it's, uh, well, they, they kind of become a lot expensive lottery tickets. Yeah, right? but it's public venture. And I think if people understand that, and if that's 60% of your portfolio, you're nuts. You're absolutely batshit crazy. But, you know, if it's uh, whatever, 5 to 10% or something like that, a smaller amount, if, if you're a longer term investor, that is, then that might be quite sensible. So um, well, yeah, that, just that's to- actually a good segue uh, into just <clears throat> a quick point I did want to make, which is, the psychology of this market, uh, which has been obviously unprecedented over the last 20 months with all the fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus on top of each other, it's something that's been working so dramatically in the bull's favor since the pandemic began. I think we're getting to a point now where just like when sentiment indicators overshoot in one direction or another, you want to begin to fade them. I'm beginning to want to fade the BTFD mentality here. We're gonna continue to have bounces. We have a very powerful retail army that has a real presence. Um, This is, you know, this is, they're far more powerful than they were in the late nineties. Yeah. They have a real impact. They've turned, uh, they've turned stock, they've turned shares into derivatives of their derivatives. (laughs) Yeah, they're derivatives of the options now, basically. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And and I I just think that, you know, we're in a situation now where for 21 months, you were basically told don't fight the Fed. Okay, so now the Fed is turning. You had Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley both out today with very hawkish commentaries. And you're asking the same people the same question and they're like, well, okay, uh, I'm just gonna keep buying anyway. You know, <laughs> there's, a, there's a disconnect there that is exploitable. And so I think, you know, in general, when it comes to the highest flying stocks of the pandemic, my inclination is to begin to fade that blind BTFD mentality Uh, Because let's be honest, the punch bowl is being drained. And I realize that a lot of people have doubts about how far the Fed will actually follow through. And some of those doubts are very valid. Um, I I know that a couple of my competitors out there, I know one in particular, has kind of been making a very strong call that, hey, listen, we're going to have a bit of a washout here. And then we're going to rip to new all-time highs. And you can see that happening because... It's almost like the market is just marking time until it fully digests a hawkish Fed, and then it's going to rip higher. The problem there is that I think, you know, and I think a lot of people realize this, the Fed seems resigned to the fact that they're going to cause an inverted yield curve in a recession. You might be able to make money once that, you know, climbing a wall of worry, once people are kind of comfortable with a more hawkish Fed, but it's probably going to lead to some kind of a deflationary bust. So, just going back again to this notion that you got to be nimble. Um, th- I mean, there's every chance in the world, especially in a month like January with all these inflows, uh, especially when we have a CPI number coming up on Wednesday, that 
it might come in a little hot, but my guess is if it doesn't come in with like a high seven or low eight handle, we're probably going higher. You know, that's just how this market is. That, that psychology, that BTFD, Tina mentality is willing to forgive so much. Uh, and it's going to take time for that to change. Uh, and I think that change will take place as the year progresses. But from a trader point of view, you better not be on the wrong side of that. Right, exactly. Um, no, it is interesting. And I just always find it so funny with this inflation number that everyone knows is bullshit anyway and is not accurate and doesn't take into account people's, but well, it is not possible to have one number. doesn't take into account anything that people actually buy. Right. And, I mean, it, it's just complete. It's a meme of itself, yet that is the one number along with maybe NFP, which again has all sorts of issues with it too. Um that are, you know, the the kind of the big numbers in kind of, you know, uh, macro. Um, because, you know, they're, they're in effect a little faster to come than GDP numbers. And GDP itself is also, by the way, highly inaccurate. So um, it is, you know what, it's it's what we have. It's it's what we can universally agree is, is it's there, but it's flawed, but there's directional correlation. Yeah. And I think people are willing to put, um, if they're willing to put a decent amount of weight on it, just because they're saying, listen, we, we know what this is. We know about the hedonics that go into the CPI calculation. But directionally, you know, people knew that inflation was hitting double digits six to nine months ago. Um, and so for CPI to go as high as it has with the highest level of 40 years, you can extrapolate from that easily. Wow, inflation's pushing 20% now <laughs> in some of these categories. So I think, I think people are able to make that mental adjustment where they see the headline number, they know it's BS, but they also know that it's, it, it, it is correlated to a pretty high level with real inflation. Yeah. So how do you think about constructing a portfolio? So, I mean, there's a lot of people have built their careers. Well, I'll, I'll be bugged. There's a lot of boomers who have built their careers on basically 60, 40 portfolios over the last mm -hmm. four decades where you, couldn't really go wrong in a long enough period of time. Um, and now we're at obviously much lower bond yields, but not quite as low as they were. Um, I mean, is 60-40 dead? Uh, you know, your portfolio is nothing like that. So, um, or your recommended kind of portfolio. So you know, how, how do you think through that? And, and, and how do you, and as you said, you're, you're thinking on a generally a pretty nimble time period. Um, how would, would you, would you give a different answer if it's someone that's, you know, a multi-year kind of investor that just doesn't want to trade as often? So. Sure. I mean, you know, I, I wear two hats. Uh, I'm an aspiring retirement asset manager. I have a very different mentality when I'm managing people's long-term nest egg, uh, than I do when I'm trading. Um, so <clears throat> I'll make that distinction right off the bat, you know, for, I, I maintain a model portfolio for retirement, uh, that is tracked. Uh, it's not audited, although I'm, I'm probably going to, uh, go ahead and get it audited for marketing reasons at some point. But, you know, my approach to constructing a long-term portfolio is very, very different, but it still begins with that GIP model. Um, I'm probably going to be a more active manager than the average manager coming from the background I do. I think a lot of the guys that I'm competing against, they kind of, you know, they, they start off, uh, they start off selling, you know, annuities and things like that. They get comfortable in the business. They learn financial planning. And most of them work for a bigger organization that kind of tells them what to buy and sell for their clients. I'm coming from a different point of view where I never really learned that sales side of the business. I never really learned those, those products. I just learned, you know, how to invest and how to trade uh, from a, uh, you know, a fundamental driven point of view. And of course you throw technicals on top of that as well. But basically, and I should back up a little bit here. 
uh, just a little bit of history. If you go back and look at the 1980s, uh, you know, there, there, there weren't money market funds before. I, I forget when they first came into being, but it was sometime in the late 70s or early 80s, money market fans, funds became a thing. Up until that point, people really had a choice. They could put their money in stocks or they could throw it into a passbook savings rate account, right? And so they just, it was, it was less liquid. They had less options. There wasn't as much moving in and out. Uh, I believe the process was called disintermediation with money market funds co uh, coming into being. But you now have people that uh, instead of just trusting, you know, kind of, okay, we're either going to put the money in a savings account at our bank or we're going to put it in the market. They now have all these options. And if they want to seek out yield, they're going to have to go do it in the market. They prefer to go do it in the market. There's a lot more options. So that has kind of taken some of the Fed's power away for one thing. It's given them a lot less control over where that money goes. Um, but it obviously over time as well, as yields have, have dropped and as people have been forced to chase it increasingly in the marketplace, you've seen that allocation go from 60-40 to 70-30 to 80-20 to then you had what Becky Quick on CNBC a couple of years ago making a comment that she's got 95% of, of her retirement assets in stocks, right? So nobody actually uses a 60-40 portfolio anymore except for people that are close to retirement, right? And yeah. even then, that might be a little risky for someone that's a little older. So for, you know, for clients that are in their 20s or 30s or 40s, you know, you're going you're gonna to be looking to hit 80 to 85% stocks um, you know, during periods where you want to be fully invested, uh, where the economy is growing, where inflation is tame, things like that. Now, that being said, how do you manage? You know, th that obviously creates a tremendous amount of risk. 80% you know, equities, given how volatile equities can be, um, it requires a more active hand. So how do we mitigate risk? How do we manage risk in that retirement portfolio with that kind of allocation? And we do it primarily through sector and factor rotation, asset class rotation. So yes, there are times where we'll pull back and have a smaller percentage of equities and a higher percentage of um, fixed income. Recently, a couple of years, uh, I think it was September of 2020 was when we started slapping a very high commodity allocation uh, into our uh, into our retirement model account, uh, we actually went as high as thirty percent at one point, which is kind of unheard of in the retirement uh, management industry. But we felt it was appropriate. Was that more um, of a trend, a commodity trend following type thing? Were you long and short, or was that mainly long? Well, it was no, no. Okay, so so just to be clear, so in the retirement model account, we well, were long short, except yeah. as it, like we'll buy things like SQQQ or SPXU right, yeah. to hedge if we think there's short term weakness coming up. I mean. I definitely take a, an alpha generation mentality towards that uh, retirement model uh, in addition to my trading. So, uh, you know, we're not going to get aggressive on a hedge, but if I can hedge out 25% of the downside, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take a whack at it if I think it's a, it's a high probability trade. But for the most part, what we're doing is we're relying on that GIP model, you know, not only for our asset allocation, but for our allocation within each asset class whether it's buying you know, uh, inflation protected bonds or nom you know, nominal treasuries, buying materials, industrials, financials, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and we're not very shy about moving in and out. Like, well, like for instance, we have had zero tech allocation for the last month. Um, that's what the model called for. And that's what we felt was appropriate to do. And you know, that'll change. We'll move back into it when conditions become more favorable for it. But you know, right now we're in a very uh, pretty heavy, commodity allocation, a lot of industrials and materials, financials, things like that. We're okay being heavily underweight certain sectors uh, in order to weed them out if we think they're gonna underperform. 
Uh, and then, of course, you know, we'll go heavily overweight a sector if we think it's getting ready to, um, to outperform. So very top down, starting again, just like with trading with that GIP model. Uh, and just, the, you know, the hardest part of running the GIP model is obviously forecasting where we're going in the next three to six months. Yeah. The market has a, what I'll, it's not the right, it's not a great term because it's. Well, and, and um, when to pivot a bit, that that's the. Honestly, yeah, I think. Well, that, yeah, that's what I'm getting at is like yeah. the market's d- duration, so to speak, in terms of, I, I hate to use that word because you hear the word duration and you think bond math, but duration in the, in the sense of how far out is the market looking right now? How far out do they, do they really care about the most? Like what's the center of gravity temporally of their focus? So sometimes it's three months out. Sometimes it's six to nine months out. And, depend, and you have to first determine that before you know where to look, right? So, I mean, if you're currently in Goldilocks, but we're heading to deflation in six months, when does the market start to price the transition in? And obviously like, there's only so much you can do. If you're gonna be trying to be overly cute, you're probably gonna drive yourself nuts. So you just, you know, you do your best to gauge it. You make the transition. If you have to bat, roll it back a bit, you do. But my sense right now is that, uh, and today's, today's uh, rally late in the day in tech, I think was very telling. As a tech bear, I took it as a yellow flag saying, you know what, this market is starting to look well beyond peak inflation, peak Fed. It's starting to look towards the second half of the year. We get it. The Fed is hiking. We get it. They're going to taper. We get it that the yield curve might invert. Let's start putting our money into things that are going to perform in that environment. So bears, uh, (laughs) you know, four words that all bears uh, really on any, well, especially on tech, but pretty much on the market overall. Four words we all understand is post-traumatic stress disorder. <laughs> so in terms of uh, you know overstaying our welcome, I'm always looking for reasons to get out of my tech shorts or uh, of my index shorts, uh, just like I did today. Uh, you know, whether you're watching something like the real five-year yield or you're watching bonds or you're watching whatever it is you might want to watch. Some people like to watch the yen crosses. Yeah. Once those indicators start to turn, you know, have the courage of your conviction and get out. You, you've set yourself up ahead of time with this logic. Follow it. Right. And um, to, just, and, and, I just want to explain quickly to those listening that some might, because to some, this is kind of confusing, but if, if we were having this conversation 20 years ago on tech, this would make no sense, right? What you just said. None whatsoever. No, like literally none. So it's like, but the rationale here is, I think what you're saying is, but correct me if I'm wrong, is that, the biggest tech, i.e. Microsoft, Apple, that type of stuff. And again, some people don't like this analogy, but they've sort of become like a bomb proxy in a world of low rates. Um, I've heard various arguments against that too, but but like, but the point being is, and also let's just call it like ARC tech as in the, the, the more venture, public venture type stuff. Um, in an envir- environment that's deflationary where rates are heading down, that actually benefits both of them. Um, yeah. even though they might be growing more slowly, which is, of course, the opposite thinking to say 20 years ago when tech was going to have all the growth. So I mean, yeah, tech has been driven for, for a while now by the cost of capital. Um, tech does very well when money is cheap. It starts to struggle when it's not. You, you use the word bond, pro- the term bond proxy. The term I use is, is treasurization. I mean, you have had, you've slowly had Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, and, and even, even like cyclical stocks like NVIDIA uh, have begun to eat share into the treasuries, excuse, have begun, they've begun to eat into the treasury's market share. Uh, that's something that no one really has been talking about. I'm not sure that the Fed thinks of it like that, or if Janet Yellen thinks of it like that. But the fact of the matter is, is that 
you have a situation where the Fed has been uh, suppressing the term premium for a long time now. They're standing here and they're watching share get stolen from the treasury, which of course, in, in, especially in an environment where inflation is high and accelerating or even high and decelerating maybe at a slower rate than people thought, it's a real problem for them. Um, they can't allow that to go on for a long period of time where you know people are saying, you know, screw treasuries. I'm just going to go put all my money in Apple. I mean, and now we have a situation where the Fed is hiking and tapering. And what does that do? It triggers a whole cycle where you've got foreigners are going to have to start selling dollar denominated assets to raise dollars to pay back the loans that they took out. You know, we've already got the Fed backing off. That means the global private sector is going to have to start financing uh, the deficits that the U.S. Treasury runs. Yeah. So if foreigners are going to be forced to sell U.S. U.S. dollar denominated assets. That means that the U.S. domestic private sector now has to finance the deficits all on their own. So this is a problem that is only going to get worse here as time goes on, because there is going to be a slight to quality bid to Apple and Google. Uh, you know, the Fed has. You know, this is what the Fed has created. They've created this monster, and now they have to fight it. I'm not sure how they triage these challenges that they face, but you know, if you consider the fact that you know a one percent move, hold on, my my squawk here is, I'm turning my squawk off. There we go. If you consider the fact that you know a one percent move in Apple is what three hundred, what is it, thirty thirty billion dollars? Yeah, it is now. Yeah. So a three so a three percent move in Apple is equivalent to almost a month of QE. Can the, you know? Can the Fed really allow this kind of thing to continue? Am I saying that they're going to come out and try to, you know, knock Apple and Microsoft down a notch? I mean, they're a political animal. A lot of very powerful people would be very angry about that. I'm, I'm imagining. But okay, but what, but, but what? Okay, so here's a question that I, I love asking people: Is okay? So let's dial it back two years. To let's try and remember a world that was pre-COVID. <laughs> As hard as that might be, although I guess it was um, exactly two years ago from now. But let's go back to, oh, we could even go back to the taper tantrums of the past, right? But whenever it is, the last few years, you're Jay Powell. What could you have done credibly that considering his limitations and the fact that it is a political position, we all know that, you had Trump in office um, and and then this pandemic hit, like, what what other because I hear a lot of people complain about the Fed, right? But what else was doable? Like with actual plausible alternate strategies to where they went? I mean, we've you know, I recently read an article. I'm trying to remember what what uh, what paper it was in. They were talking about how Tom Honig, the former Fed governor, I think he was, I want to say he was Kansas City or something, uh, president of the Kansas City Fed. You know, he he refused to go along with. Ben Bernanke uh, in the wake of the financial crisis. And he, and he was turned into a leper for it and basically forced to resign. The ghost of Tom Honig has been haunting every Fed chairman since then, and, and no one more so than Jay Powell. Because we had a choice in 2008. What, and it's because we're a democracy, because politically everything is a race to the bottom, because it's a, it's a populist race to say, hey, elect me, I will take from him and give to you. Politicians took the easy way out. And they said, let's bail out. Let's bail everyone out. These are powerful people. We don't want to make enemies of them. We could have decided to take our medicine, delever, struggle for a while, and eventually kind of rebuild. I mean, I forget what the exact amount was that we spent on TARP. We could have allocated a lot of that capital to infrastructure and things like that. 
we made an active choice to bail out the 1% essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and once that, once we got started down that road, it would have taken, you know, it's an open question how much freedom the Fed chair really has right, from yeah. government. I don't know. I mean, Danielle uh, DiMartino probably could answer that. She you definitely answer it, answer it a lot better than I can. My sense is, well, you know, Trump was a bit of an anomaly. You got the sense that Trump may have just sat Powell down and totally emasculated him because that pivot that he did in January 2019, it really caught everyone off guard. And it was kind of like, does this guy have any spine at all? But it happened. And we have to assume, and I think it's smart to assume, that Trump had some had a lot to do with that. Trump and Mnuchin both. Well, just, just so people remember that anyone that's newer, in December 18, you had a, what, 20% correction in equity. Yep. And, and very, very quickly. Like, that was the huge vol spike. Um, the, the Christmas Eve massacre. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, you, you had a situation where, you know, I think, I think from about September 2017 to December 2018, you know, about, what was it, it was 15, 16 months, I think Powell was feeling pretty good about himself, kind of like, hey, you know, Powell was traditionally a hawk. Um, he, I think he felt like, hey, I'm going to be the guy that, that tapers us and takes us off the heroin, <laughs> the monetary heroin. Yes. And things were going great until December 2018 when the high yield market started to buckle. Yeah. And that's what caused that. that, that well, and to your point, they always care more about HYG or J&K. Absolutely. Than... And I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions out there. Yeah, I agree. Yes, the Fed cares about the S&P 500. Absolutely. But it cares 100 times more about HYG. Yeah. Um, and, and then you had a situation where you had a president who, who doesn't listen to anybody, who had decided to base his entire, uh, his, he was going to measure the success of his presidency based on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. That was the, the hand that Powell was forced to face. Now, I don't know what on, went on behind closed doors. I've heard rumors, but I'm not even going to bother to repeat them here because it's just hearsay and, and it, it doesn't matter. No one really knows what happened. Well, some people, someone knows what happened, but we're probably never going to find out. The fact of the matter is, is that Powell decided or, or was basically told that he had to pivot. And then, you know, we, we had a, a huge bull run from there up until COVID. And then obviously COVID gave the Fed, put the Fed in a situation where, you know, look, I'm a little more sympathetic with what the Fed did in response to the, the pandemic. They completely overdid it. I think, I don't think there's too many people who would disagree with that statement. Right. But that was because they underdid it at first in 07 and 08. Like they were slow. So I think that was inevitable. You're going to get like a, a knee jerk to be too fast. Okay. Absolutely. No question. And look, I mean, again, this is a, it's a democracy. Uh, you know, every everyone, even, even officials like Powell that are appointed, they're appointed by elected officials. So, you know, indirectly, the electorate controls uh, all, you know, who who's in charge of this stuff. But there's no question that, you know, pretty much since I mean, look, Greenspan, you know, what, what we used to call him, what the maestro. Right. I. I don't think there was ever a Fed chairman with a bigger ego than Alan Greenspan. You know, <laughs> even back in the late '90s, I think he, 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 his opinion of his ability to manipulate the economic cycle was far higher than what it should have been. And I don't think it's a mis I don't think it's an accident that he stepped down when he did. He saw the writing on the wall, and he left Ben Bernanke with a mess to clean up. Bernanke was in a position where he basically was going to be treated like a leper, like Tom Honig, or he was going to go ahead and reinflate the bubble. And you know, look, what, what's the saying? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. I don't think that Bernanke and Powell sat there and said, hey, 
let's let's just keep printing money and make all our rich friends even richer. I think that they were in a tough spot. They were had a lot of pressure on them. And they basically said, look, let's do this and hope we can back our way out. And of course, that becomes the million dollar question, or at this point, the trillion dollar question, if not the quadrillion. Oh, quadrillion, question. I think. Yeah, give it a exactly. <laughs> Is are we ever going to be able to back out of this? And I don't know anyone that thinks that we can unwind all of this without a disaster. I don't know a single person that thinks that. Right. And also there isn't any politician that I know of anywhere in the world. Like, well, there might be the odd person here and there, but I mean, you've got people like, (laughs) right. Yeah. Cause I've got, you've got people like Pierre Pouliev or whatever he's called in Canada who, who, who has lots of nice sound bites, but it's like, okay. You know, he's obviously right-wing politician there been getting a lot of play recently on Twitter and he's very quick to point out a lot of the issues, but again, what are the, genuine solutions so um that are palatable you know that would mean you're actually going to be elected because politicians don't only want to get elected i also think that's one thing it's very important to understand when investing like they ain't elected they can't do much so um well and and it and it gives rise to this whole notion of i mean you know there's a lot of there's a lot of hate among longtime trading veterans for this new breed it's almost like back in the days of aristocracy in europe (laughs) <laughs> no, there's nothing a nobleman hates more than a quote unquote new man who's yeah. just been elevated and has no real, he has no lineage, right? It's the same thing. There's a lot of hate for these people that have come in that have no idea what they're doing, but they have the intelligence to recognize what was going on and they have the intelligence to exploit it. And, you know, all, you know, this, this buy the effing dip mentality uh, is, you know, it's the logical denouement of everything the Fed has done. Now, I mean, I think the question becomes, you know, why should I stop buying dips is the question I get most often from new guys. And I can throw compelling arguments at them all day long, and they're still going to sit there and go, yeah, I'm just going to keep buying. And why would they stop? Until There's no reason for them to stop until they've been so severely punished for it that they know it's time right. to figure out. And, 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 and if you don't mind me sticking in a plug for Blue Shirt Plus here, Blue Shirt Plus is uh, an extension of Blue Shirt Advisors. It's a separate company, but it basically is a, you know, we, we, we publish general market commentary, trade ideas, things like that. It's not designed for any one group, but I'm really targeting uh, people that are new to this, that understand that we're going through a transition here, and that really want to learn how to trade. Uh, because, you know, BTFD is not trading is lining up for a welfare handout. And that's not to knock the people that did it because it was smart to do it. Um, but that's really what—that's really one of the groups that we're mainly addressing here is, uh, you, you know, you're gonna have a bunch of people. I was a young trader once. I blew two bankrolls in my first two years of the trading because I did stupid things. You know, I can't even tell you how many times I, I, I put on a trade, it went against me. I doubled down, I tripled down, I quadrupled down. And then I got to that point where I'm like, screw it. Just put it all. I'm all in. Screw it. You know, it became a reckless poker, essentially. There's a whole bunch of people that are new to trading that haven't gone through that yet. And there's a lot of people in that subgroup that I think recognize what's going on and are like, you know what? I need to learn more about how to trade for real. And that's kind of who we're targeting primarily at the moment. Um, So that's my shameless plug. And I'll leave it. It's all good. No problem. Um, I'm not one of these perma bears that wants to see blood in the streets. I was bullish 
from June of 2020 up until I, really. But I don't think ago. you should be called. I, so I don't understand why you just say you're not one of these perma bears. You just you're stating you're a perma bear. You're not a perma bear. I've seen you be incredibly bullish on a whole bunch of stuff. Right. But, 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 but by the way, called, Keith McCullough gets exactly the same people. criticism at Hedgeye when he's bearish on something that he was bullish a month ago or a week ago or a day ago, and then he gets called a perma bear. Like it, it's it's kind of. But that's what happens. That I mean, that's what we're dealing with here. Is I mean, like you said, you you know my track record. You know, kind yeah, of. But you yourself are calling yourself a perma bear. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm, well, maybe I misstated. I, what I'm saying, okay, I under, I see where you're going with that. Like I'm stating it because I've been called it a lot lately. Right. Yeah. But the point I'm trying to make isn't that I'm trying, like you know, to sit here and be. Like, I don't think it's some Freudian betrayal where I'm like, I'm not a perma bear. Wait, I really am a perma bear. All I'm saying is, is that. Um, you've got, see, now you made me forget my point. No, look, all I was trying to get at is that you're not, okay, I would say someone like Sven online has been pretty perma-bearish for quite a long time and is well known yeah. for it. Um, and I, it's sort of, but by the way, it gets a huge following doing it. Um, I, I would not in any way put yourself in that category. I think you're much more nimble and it's just, you know, all markets go up and down and then, and, you know, and, and Stop, we all no, wish we could time everything up, perfectly. Stop, we, go up. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we no one can time everything perfectly. Uh, and there well, are times was, to be bearish and times to be bullish. It's fine. And, and so that was actually my point. And I just remembered it is, you know, I, I think anyone who spent any significant time on financial Twitter knows that th there's a lot of angry perma bears on there. And you can tell that they are just chomping at the bit for a big fat schadenfreude sandwich. They just want to see blood filling the streets. I am not a perma bear, as you mentioned. And as I, well, I, I, I mentioned, you reiterated, I really, I don't want to see anyone get wiped out. I got wiped out. I spent, uh, you know, 18 months paying off 10 grand in credit card debts that I used to fund my FX trading account. It wasn't fun. You know, I really am in a position here where, yes, I'm running a business. I want to get paid, but I really want to help people avoid that. Like there is, there's no, I don't have an emotional investment in the market going one way or another. I'm just going to try to get it right. And I'm just hoping that enough people realize what's going on, enough, enough newer people, neophytes. Neophytes, it seems to have a negative connotation, but it really doesn't. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe you, I don't know if you'd agree with that or not. The term neophyte kind of sounds almost a little negative, but I mean it not at you all. You always use mind. words I don't understand. So <laughs> all I'm saying is I want to see that, like, you've had a lot of people that came out of nowhere and have built themselves a nice little nest egg, and I want to see them protect it and grow it. I really do. It's better for everybody. It really is. Right. So let me. The last me... thing we want to see is is Occupy Wall Street 2.0. Uh, you know, especially in New York right now, where the city is crumbling. Yeah, yeah, yeah for <laughs> they sure. They can't handle anymore. You'll need you'll need a vaccine pass to get into uh, Zuccotti Park. But yeah, so I mean, it, it's I'm in a position here where this is a transition phase. I think there's an opportunity to really help people, uh, and that's really what Blue Shirt Boss is all about. All right. So let I wanted to. It's building on that, but I'm interested in. I'm, I, yeah, whilst I'm happy to like think maybe some of the stuff I say can help an experienced 40, 50 year old, you know, that has made some money and, you know, fine. But you know what? They've probably already got some of their biases and whatever. But, but I'm, I'm not saying they're not possible to help. But like, I'm very interested in the kind of 20 to 35 year old, just like you're talking about. And so one of the things, all right, I'm, I'm unfortunately significantly older than that now. Um, but um, one of the things I've done over the years and I've, I've kind of honed how I, I approach things. So I just wanted to, I don't think I've talked about this before on the pod, so get your view on it. So I kind of realized that 
um, I, I realized a long time ago, it's not that I will be emotional about some investments. It's easy to say, don't be emotional, but some people- It's impossible not to be. Right, so, so then I just realized that, okay, fine. Then I realized that going short stresses me out. It just does. Um, I'm even more stressed if I buy puts than buying calls and I've bought both. I can't lose more than the premium, right? So it really shouldn't stress me, but it does. So, and this may be very difficult for a retail investor to do. Um, you can certainly do it if you're accredited or if you're not in America, um, but the accreditation and investor laws are still quite limiting. Um, but what, what I realized about a year ago was I, I want to reduce stress in my life. Um, and so I generally want to be long risk because most of the time that works pretty good. Now, having said that, there are absolutely times where you're going to get annihilated, not just March 2020, but it's happened many, you know, we talked about December 18 and we can go back to many times. So I put quite a significant allocation and I don't mean like 5%. I mean, like, um, you're talking 15, 20%, like much more into long volatility strategies that I don't run, that I use a third party. And if anyone's interested, I'm not going to say who they are because I'm not trying to market for anyone on the pod, but like if anyone's interested and is an accredited investor, just DM me on Twitter and I can make an introduction. Um, and, um, and so what it did is it meant that, and so these are strategies that they're designed to pretty much maybe lose a few percent a year when it's just a not, not particularly eventful year. But if there's a proper volatility spike, you know, like to 50 or whatever, um, then they should be paying out, um, i.e. if stocks are down like 30%, something like that, um, sure. then these strategies really should be paying out 50 to 100% type of thing. And if you put enough in that, that kind of, which is, which is in effect what I did with COVID with Euro dollar call options, um, which obviously did Yeah. Um, but my point is like, yeah, I, I, but what I noticed was that I spoke to a few people about it and they're like, oh yeah, I put like 2% in that type of stuff. I'm like, well, that's not going to hedge you in any way. Like, you know, it's got to be a material amount. You've got to be prepared that you are going to have to top those investments up most years because they're going to bleed a little bit. Um, but it, then it gave me the confidence to swing for the fences on some other things. But to your point, that was with my kind of longer term hat on, right? Like, Psychological um, leverage. Right. So like, I don't, so that's sort of for me how I, that, that's what I do now. Um, and so it means when I get into like, you know, uranium miners and stuff and, you know, I can kind of swing for it more, like not being so afraid that I could get, you know, totally wiped out. Um, sure. I'm not saying this is for everyone. I'm just saying that's how I kind of came. I'm, does that sound completely crazy or, or how do you think about long volatility? I mean, that, that, you know, I, I, I believe that's an asset class now, but like, uh but you know. I, I'm trying to remember the name. You actually may know the name of the guy. I have, I have the white paper buried somewhere on my hard drive. I'll try to find it. He was making the case for just like you are volatility as an asset class and for holding it always. Uh, it really was just, you know, it was kind of a question. Uh, was it Chris uh, Cole or? That might have been it. It could have been someone. No, that's that's what that's Artemis Capital, right? Yeah, or it could be Jason. So Jason Buck, who's been on the show before, someone like yeah. that. Yeah. It might have been one of those guys. Or Corey I, could. I have, Corey probably says the same as well, Corey Hofstein. So anyway, whatever. I'm sure they've I all will, said that. I will tell you this: it's hard to sell that to uh, the average retirement investor. Yeah. Um, you know, because just explaining to them what theta <laughs> is, why it's worth paying for, how much you're paying for it. 
what the long-term effects are going to be. I've always kind of looked at those strategies as they can be very appropriate for high net worth investors, accredited investors. Um, I, I mean, some of the guys who run these strategies are beyond brilliant. Um, I would say probably most of them are, otherwise they wouldn't, they wouldn't have any market share. Um, I'm all for them, for, for appropriate investors. Um, I, think, I agree with you that volatility can be an asset class, probably is an asset class. Uh, I, it probably is only uh, a viable asset class for a small percentage of investors out there. Um, there are other, there are other ways, you know, ha- I, obviously I'm not, I'm not an active RIA yet. I have potential clients lined up. I've had conversations with them about you know, what the approach will be and things like that. It's, it's, um, it'd be hard to explain. I think it'd be a hard sell. Uh, you know, you, you would assume that if you have a retirement client, they're with you because they trust you, they're giving you discretion. Uh, so to some extent you could, you know, um, what, what's the ETF that we always talk about? Is it Ivol? Oh, is that oh. The one? well, I, well, I mean, Ivol is the curve, uh, steepening ETF. Basically. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's, it's 85% that. tips and the rest is, um, yeah. Um, so that's cool. a basic example, a sort of like a, a something like along the lines of what you're talking about that's available to retail traders. Oh, and Even but there's the that, simply ETF stuff as well, which is SVOL and um, some of those, okay. uh, but which are basically um, long stocks with um, a volatility overlay. Um, uh, well, I think there's what there's like was a QQQA is one. I, there's, there's, a, you're right, there's a bunch yeah, of they, they, they have another one for NASDAQ, there. but yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, well, so just let me give you an example. So the, the reason that I'm, I'm hesitant to, to like, I wouldn't even probably introduce it to a retirement client because um, I have one. I have one potential client who is pretty savvy and is pretty much he's well aware of what happened to XIV in February of 2018. Um, I mean that was nothing short of Armageddon for people that were involved. They got totally wiped out. Um, now again, when you're dealing with high net worth investors, I mean first of all, if you're a high net worth individual, you know you can set aside a small percentage of your capital for a strategy like that. And if you lose it all, you're fine. You know, you might, you might give up your gains for the year, but for the most part, you're going to be fine. For the average retire, you know, for the, for the guy that's got, you know, anywhere from half a million to 2 million or something like that in retirement, it's, it's a much harder sell. Um, I love the concept. And I, as I said, I think it makes a lot of sense for high net worth investors. Um, but it's, there, there is a, there's a lack of trust out there. And understandably so for this very complex stuff, you know, all people can think about is, uh, you know, long-term capital and <laughs> some right. of these other, of some of these other uh, derivative, exotic derivative strategies that have blown up. But I, I, I'm not too well-versed on what the offerings are out there, but I understand the kind of things you're talking about. And like, if, if I was a high net worth individual, which I hope to be someday, I would absolutely take advantage of them. Yes. I, I think it's interesting because what I realized for myself is I can't make the trades myself. It's simply because, um, well, the time zone I'm on, um, it, it, it's um, it, it's actually pretty, you've got to do an all of analysis, it's highly technical, you've got to understand every Greek known to humanity, um, even the ones you've never heard of, and um, so you, I just decided to do it yourself. Yes, I'm saying that what I'm yeah, saying no, is that people are listening. Yeah. yeah, doing this yourself is very difficult. Um, I, I can't do it myself, hence I outsource it. Um, and then it's not stressful if you've. I find if you outsource something, the stress goes away, even if it's a volatile type of outsourcing. It's kind of sounds weird, but it's just because you're not controlling it every day. Um, and um, yeah, 
So, um, but uh, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, you know, just just running. So, for those of you, uh, I don't know, perhaps maybe interested in BlueShirt Plus, uh, if there's anyone out there, uh, for you know, for because I'm in registration to be an RAA, and just for general, just to keep things simple on the compliance side, um, we're, we're the the tracking portfolio that we're trading in is basically just a paper trading account uh, at Interactive Brokers. Uh, for me to trade my own accounts and deal with the compliance, I think it's just too big a headache right now. So for now, we're going to do it this way. But the point I'm making is, you know, just to have 20 or 25 trades on them here and keep track of them every day is crazy. You know, I mean, every day I've got to go through the charts for all of these things that we hold. Uh, you know, I got to ch check all various metrics and things. So, so exactly. And what you're saying, it's just totally impractical. Unless you're retired and you're going to trade your own money full time, that's what those that's what those products are for. Uh, just let someone who knows what they're doing do it for you. <laughs> um, okay, well, you change tack a bit. So, how do you do? You, we've talked about a lot of let's just say obvious investments. Um, with the death of kind of sixty forty, people are looking. You know, also this relates to what you said earlier about what is value, right? So. You know, I mean, you know, I'm a as other people you know are a fan of you know uranium miners at the moment, and, and actually just the spot uranium. Um, like, and that's an example of a kind of you know that that entire uranium mining industry is only like sixty billion in equity. It's like nothing. Um, I mean, it produces like twenty percent of U.S. power, but on ten percent of the world. But like, um, do you put things like? Are you looking at stuff like that? Because again, you if you look at everything. You, you'd have a thousand million things to look at. So, um, or are you trying to keep it more like, well, you know what, that might be sort of like XLB, I guess, um, it, it, even though they're not in it. But um, just wondering how you think through kind of, you yeah. know, another thing I've been talking about a lot is carbon credits. You know, it's a very different type yeah. of, you know, totally different correlations. I think very interesting in a portfolio. Like, again, not to have like 90% of a portfolio in it, but like, do you look at these... Are you looking at correlations as well, where you've got low correlations? Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, well, I mean, we yes, we absolutely maintain a, a correlation, um, you know, analysis for our portfolio of trades. Uh, you know, I think it was Ray Dalio, my old boss, who once said that if you can find 14 assets that have zero percent correlation, you're you're in heaven. Yeah, uh, that's well, good luck. Pretty much impossible <laughs> to do. Yeah, pretty much impossible. Um, but that being said, the general idea I think is important. Uh, so it, it, it's so easy, especially when you're in a transition phase like we are now, uh, to double up on the same idea without realizing it. You know, so for instance, you've got guys out there probably, I would imagine, I know one guy, younger guy, he's short bonds, he's short tech, uh, he's short gold. You know, if rates pop, uh, excuse me, if rates drop a little bit okay. one day, he's going to get wiped out. So he's so the same you, trade. You yeah. have to. Yeah. yeah, it's the same trade. Exactly. So, yes, we absolutely keep track of that. I, uh, you know, for instance, classic example, we had the QQQ put spreads. You know, I, I was keeping a super close eye on bond charts, the real five-year yield, which has is very powerful for the NASDAQ. Uh, TLT, you know, we were reaching major long-term support levels. It was all, like, just for, as a, from a technician's point of view, I, I felt compelled to buy them, but I only bought them because they went against my biggest trade. You know, it, it was, it, for me, like that was what made it permissible. Um, if, if we, if TLT had kept going to the downside and broken that big uptrend, I wouldn't have shorted it. Let's put it that way. I've already got that trade on. So yes, we do track that very closely, but going back to your point about 
things like uh, the carbon credits and things like that. How do we keep track of it all? I, I am ashamed to admit that I'm a, I am a, I'm an analog guy. I keep a note, I keep a diary. <laughs> I keep a notebook. And every time I come across a new IG, like KRBN, things like that, I put it in the notebook and I, and I investigate it. Um, and I mean, you're actually the one that turned me on to that one. And I, and I have placed that in a retirement model account. Uh, I, you know, I think these are the ways that over time you can really, you know, everyone loves the idea of, of beating their benchmark by 2000 basis points. But the fact yeah. of the matter is, is that for a long-term money manager, you just want to beat by 50 to hundred a year. And the compounding effect on that, I mean, obviously you'd like to beat it by more than that if you can, but if you're beating it by hundred a year, the compounding effect over time, you're adding tremendous value to your client's portfolio. Right. Um, I, but adding stuff like that, stuff that other people aren't looking at, that can really make a difference. Right. And if you had Carbiana in your portfolio, even if it was just a 1% position, it had a it moved the needle a little bit for you last year. Oh, I would I, I see it's been a. I mean, again, something could happen, right? It's not a dead cert. Nothing is, but like, right. and it, and it has big pullbacks. By the way, it's not like it's it's actually one of those things where volatility is 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 actually relatively uh, high. Um, but it um, it what I noticed is when you put it in your model portfolio, you just put a little bit in, and the whole point is is like just get it on the scorecard, right? So you're actually right. paying attention. Um, and that, I know some people that buy one share of something, literally, um, just so it's there. And every day, it's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, but some people, I mean, right, no, I, I, yeah, I it's, it sounds kind of nuts, but like, right, I might buy 100 shares, something, whatever. But like, I have often just do that just to get it on the page. And it's amazing. It's, it's like with cryptocurrencies, I say to people, just get off zero. Like, I don't care if you put like, you have a, you know, one Satoshi, or that, that would be a bit silly because that's like less than a cent, but like, you know, like it, just get something and just going through the process often also with that, because it's a different process to buy it. It depends where you are, right? But, um, you know, it, it, it's an interesting one, especially for these kind of newer um, uh, asset classes. Uh, I'm not saying, well, of course, the last podcast was all about how carbon credits is a new asset class, but, um, you yeah, know, I think that's a, probably a relatively controversial statement for most people, although, although even I think it, it probably is. Well, you're also hinting at this notion of like, I mean, how many, we have the Wilshire 5,000. I forget, I forget how many stocks there are in the US. It's it's like five, was it 5,000, 6,000? five or 10,000, like there's about oh, 60,000 okay. so 60, in the world, I think, that are public, something like that. Either way, this is a, uh, it's a small universe when you consider just how big the global economy is and how much money is coming to the U.S. to, to park, park money there. I think the ability to construct synthetic positions or even sectors like, and I'm just, this is just off the top of my head. You, you kind of just gave me the idea as you were talking. I mean, using things like carbon credits in, in conjunction with, with tech, in conjunction with a certain kind of fixed income instrument. That's one of the things that I, uh, I would love to start looking at things like that. Um, where I can put three ETFs or four ETFs together and say, hey, and then do a study on it and say, hey, listen, this is a highly uncorrelated group that does well over time. Exactly. I mean, I think that's the kind of thing that, you know, that's probably the kind of thing that's going to attract institutional money more than retail money. But it's the kind of thing that any asset manager should be doing, in my view. It, it's, I mean, every, anyone can go out there and buy SPY and play golf. You know, and it works. It's been working for a while and it's probably going to continue to work for the most part over the long haul. Because, I mean, that's that's the story of the U.S. stock market since World War II. It just keeps going up. Even, even after it drops hard, it keeps going up. 
So there's no question that the risk reward probably will be tilted to the upside un until we, you know, until until Alaric and the Visigoths start knocking on the on the door. You can probably continue to buy dips longer term. But um, yeah, I, you know, I think for a while you've had a lot of PMs who just said, you know what, Apple's doing all the work for me. Just throw a bunch of money into it and go play golf. That's not adding value, and it's and it's lazy. And even though it's been working, it's not what we're supposed to be doing. I think we're supposed to be seeking out synthetic, you know, whatever you want to call it, quanta uh, that are you know have a low correlation and have good historical performance or a good projected performance. Cool. And so, is that the advice you give to newer investors? So let, let's take that, you know, left college or university for those who aren't in America uh, and. Um, they're in their first job, they're 25 to 35. They're just, you know, you know, mid thirties, 40 can often be people's peak earning years. Like they're starting to actually build up some amount of capital. Um, you know, like, is that the advice you'd really give them in terms of how they build their portfolios? Or, um, I mean, you're basically, you're basically saying, be curious, don't just follow the crowd, do your, put your own work in, um, but also be um, cognizant that, well, there's like a hell of a lot of assets out there these days. So, um... you know, I mean, first of all, don't do the work yourself. Pay me to do it, right? <laughs> but, um, you know, if you're just starting, look, there, there's a lot to be said for the notion of uh, simplicity, you know, uh, whether it's the, the, the Thoreauian simplicity, just, just keep it simple, stupid, however you want to put it. Stocks have been such great performers over the longer haul that I don't see any, re like, are we going to have... Um, another collapse like we did in 2008, maybe. I mean, it almost seems inevitable, uh, you know, that we're going to have some kind of a reckoning. But, uh, you know, what, what is it? Uh, people have been predicting the end of the world for 14 years and it just hasn't happened. Um, so it makes sense to continue doing what works. I think, so when you're putting together a portfolio, um, you know, using good old, whether you're using spider, uh, the spider ETFs, whether you're just taking a really simple approach and using QQQ and SPY, maybe some of the international ETFs, keep it simple for the most part. Uh, that being said, I think where, and again, not many people have the patience for this. You know, when you talk to someone about adding 100 to 200 basis points in alpha a year, they're not going to throw a party for you. You know, they're going to kind of yawn. But it adds up and compounds over time. So for the conscientious investor who's been building their own portfolio, Looking at these alternative investments, uh, as long as they're liquid, uh, and as long as, you know, I mean, I don't know of any ETFs out there with significant counterparty risk, but when the shit hits the fan, there probably will be a few that pop up, right? Well, so, ETFs should be better than some of the ETPs or ETNs, yes, just because sure, the structure sure. of them. But to be fair, there's obviously, um, I mean, even something like HYG, you know, ETFs got pretty big spread. In, uh, yeah. in March yeah, 2020, I mean, right? I mean, and that's a pretty liquid ETF, right? So ETFs are also complex, right? Because liquidity is printed, right? Uh, by market makers. So I, I would always say to people, look at the big bid-ass spreads. Um, for example, in carbon credits, like one of the major reasons I use KRBN is simply because it's got the best spread. And I know it's got some US um, carbon credits in it, basically. Um, but I'm fine with that too, because you know it's not just Europe. Um, and there are other ones, um, and, and they're just, it's not like they're less liquid because liquidity is printed, but they're less, um, they, they'd have a worse spread. Um, and I hate trading big spreads. It just annoys me. Um, 
and and you lose money, right? I mean, you know, you literally just in some ways giving money away to the uh, the uh, the spread. You know, when I was at Bridgewater, we started r- right about six months into my tenure there. We started trading Australian inflation index bonds. And when I was new, I was the guy that was tasked with calling up the you know Macquarie and and yeah. the other market makers and, and getting a quote. And the spreads were just ridiculous. And I remember saying to my boss, I'm like. You're ta- you're, you know, we're talking about you know 10% upside. Why are we paying 5% to put the position on, <laughs> right? So yeah, it's something that you got to take into account. You see this all the time with, you know, you, ETFs. A lot of ETFs have extremely liquid options, but there's a bunch that don't. And the temptation to trade them anyway is huge. Um, well, it may not be huge for some. It was always high for me. But as a general rule of thumb, like. You know, especially if, if you're looking to trade with leverage by using options, yeah, you better make sure that the, the, that the, the contracts are very liquid because uh, they're often not. But yes, to, to your point, getting involved in some of these other kinds of investments, you got to take how much is it going to cost me to wind and unwind this trade because it's going to eat into a lot of your profit. Yeah. And then I think on, on the options thing, especially doubly so on the options thing, and this is the same for also, you know, stocks that haven't got a super liquid options market um having patience on trade execution um can i mean you, you know if you're just diving in and paying whatever the uh ask is then it could literally be 25 30 percent above the yeah. bid <laughs> i mean it's like that's a lot so i've seen a lot of and i've made that mistake sometimes like oh i must get in and um but it's amazing how if you split the middle or whatever then you know a bit of patience you often get filled but not always um but you also have to show your i mean obviously it doesn't matter if you're if you're chris dark or tim boyd you don't have to worry about showing your hand yeah if you're uh if you're bridgewater you got to worry about a lot because now you're tipping your hand so obviously it depends there's a huge difference between uh, i mean that was one of the things we worried most about when i was there was you know, we were, this was before electronic trading. So this was 2001 to 2003. And it, it was kind of just, be, electronic trading was kind of just becoming online. We were still working the phones and calling pit dealers and things like that. So you did have to worry about things like that. You really don't anymore. But with, with an investment like you're talking about, where you're, you have a huge spread and you're going you're to work the middle. In general, that's something you want to avoid if you can. Yeah, absolutely. Um... All right, cool. We'll cover the law. Anything else you wanted to dive into, or um, we've had about it? No, I just I'll put one more final plug in there for Blue yeah. Shirt Plus, just to kind of let everyone know what it is exactly and how it works. Uh, so, so it is a private Twitter account. The handle is at Blue Shirt underscore Plus. Um, it is a, it is totally free right now. Um, I am private. So apparently, the SEC and the state regulators are going to be cracking down on on uh, on Twitter market commentary. So we have chosen to register the company um, to make sure we're in full compliance. That means that I don't know exactly when we're going to go live, but the plan is to charge $30 a month for a subscription. Uh, That gives you access to the private Twitter account, uh, as well as a website we're setting up that'll have things like a chart book and it'll have some commentary on there that where, you know, Twitter's 280 characters won't suffice. Uh, We'll have a little bit, uh, you know, more in-depth commentary on there. Uh, so it'll be 30 a month or 320 for the year. Uh, if you would like to inquire uh, more, blueshirtplus at gmail.com. It's blueshirtplus at gmail.com. So again, you know, this is, we have, we have institutional followers. We've got, I think, mostly retail followers. Um, but this is a great time, I think, to, it's becoming a community effort. Uh, we're leveraging our collective brain power. Uh, I've been asking people for their best trade ideas uh, frequently, and, and I've gotten some great ones. So it, it's actually been, been quite a lot of fun so far. 
so we hope that uh, some of you will join us. Absolutely. And um, no, I definitely recommend it. It's been good fun. And um, for, just to clarify, it's, for those, it, it, it's already live. It's just free at the moment. So. Yeah, exa- exactly. It's, you know, the Investment Advisor Act in 1940, you know, the line in the sand is, is are you accepting compensation? Uh, and it's a big no-no to do that until you're registered either with the state or with the SEC, depending on how, how big your operation is. So uh, we are, uh, we are compliant uh, compliance nuts. <laughs> we don't, we know, uh, you know, things can go badly quickly for, for anyone that runs afoul of regulators. We have no intention of risking that. So we will, uh, we're hoping to go live sometime in February, maybe early March at the latest, but that's up to the Nebraska regulators. All right. Good stuff. Well, thank you very much. Whistle stop tour of macro. Um, let's see what goes on. It will be, um, well, I'm sure we'll be trolling each other on Twitter, but, um, I honestly, the next six months, are. Uh, I think going to be fascinating. So uh, I think there's going to be great opportunities on both sides of the market. I really do. And, and again, yeah. coming back to that word nimble, uh, it, it, we talked, you touched on the word emotion earlier. Uh, it's just so easy to get attached emotionally to a thesis. Uh, and, you know, the, the exercise that I force myself to do every single morning is I, I, I just ask myself, what's the opposite case for the positions that I have on? And, you know, do I find it compelling? I think if you're doing that, uh, you're going to be fine. Manage your risk properly, you know, be intellectually honest with yourself, uh, try to fight your emotion. And uh, I don't know anyone that does those three things that doesn't do well, let's put it that way. Good stuff. All right, let's leave it at that. Thanks very much, Tim. Thank you, Chris.